Hey, and welcome back to episode 29 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and today I'm joined by Erica Brescia, CEO and co-founder of Bitnami. With over 1 million deployments per month, Bitnami provides the largest source of applications and development environments to the world's leading cloud service providers. Erica and her co-founder, Daniel, bootstrapped Bitnami after participating in Y Combinator, and have been thoughtful about the company's growth ever since. It was great talking with her about founder perseverance, and I'm so excited for you all to take a listen. And with that, here's Erica. so much for being on my show today. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, so start by telling us about Bitnami and what it is. Sure. Bitnami, uh, at least currently, is known as being an app catalog for server software. So we package over 150 um, applications, primarily open source, and make them available across a wide range of platforms. And <clears throat> just to dive into that a little bit more, um, we package everything from things like WordPress and Joomla to de- developer tools like Jenkins or GitLab to big data solutions like Hadoop uh, to language development environments for Node and Rails, LAMP, Java, etc. So as a user, you can come to Bitnami and choose from any of the applications that we package and deploy them on any of the major cloud platforms or in your local um, data center, either on bare metal or in a virtualized environment. So people come to Bitnami because they know that the apps that they get from us will be uh, consistently configured, free of any kind of malware or security issues and totally up to date. And we make them really easy to deploy. Um, And all the apps are free to users. We actually monetize through our relationships with the cloud vendors because we drive hundreds of millions of hours of usage for them uh, on their platforms. Great, Uh, but I know that security is so important to people, so that's that's really interesting. And Mm -hmm. you know, how did you find this opportunity? Sure, it was pretty organic, to be honest. Uh, My co-founder and I have been working on software packaging for quite a long time together, over 10 years now. And Bitnami came about uh, as more of a side project. Um, In 2008, we started really getting it going and uh, formed the company around Bitnami itself in 2013. So what happened was we saw the impact that providing a great deployment experience had on software companies that we were working with, like Alfresco and MySQL and Sugar CRM and many others. And we decided that it would make sense to create a curated and broader catalog of all of the best uh, server software out there and make it incredibly easy for users to deploy and that there would be a lot of value in that. And um, we've obviously seen that to be the case. We have over a million deployments a month of apps of the software we package across all the platforms that we support. And um, as I alluded to earlier, just to stick this in there, um, we are coming to market with a new product this year based on everything that we've learned and built over the years, which is our product for the enterprises, which allows people to take advantage of the Bitnami tool chain to package up their own software for deployment in all these environments. So as with packaging the 
the app catalog, this has been very user-driven, right? We have all these people using the packages that we create, and they're coming back to us and saying, hey, that's awesome for all the off-the-shelf software I want to use, but I have all this in-house developed software, and I want to be able to uh, package it up the same way and maintain it the same way with all of your automation. That's really exciting. Um, and so what were you doing? You know, how did you find yourself in this space? I guess <laughs> you're in the Valley. Um, have you been out there for quite a while? Sure. So um, I am a Bay Area native. I grew up in Danville, went to school in LA. Uh, my first job out of school was at T-Mobile, um, building and managing sales teams for them. And I, I got involved in a few other things there as well. But really what happened is I was getting very interested in what was going on in the open source space. I'd been reading about Linux and kind of the new business models, like the companies like Red Hat were pursuing. And I just found yeah. it to be very interesting. I've always had an interest in tech, even though I studied investment finance. And I was introduced <laughs> to my co-founder by a mutual friend and just started helping him out initially out of just sheer fascination with the space and he is a really smart technical guy who was a member of the Apache Software Foundation and could teach me a lot and I could teach him a lot about sales and building and managing teams and operations and things like that and you know it really just kind of went from there I started helping a little and then I was helping more and then all of a sudden you know I turned down a, an offer to join another startup to join him full-time and actually build a company around everything so um, I can't say that I had this genius plan that I followed. It was really just going with my, my interest and my gut. And obviously, as with most things in life, there was a bit of like luck and being open to opportunity there as well. Yes. Well, I mean, that's very true, but I find it interesting that you mentioned your co-founder because on the show, you know, I've actually interviewed a few people who are solo founders, um, but I'm, I'm really interested in the relationship between founders. And so was that something you guys tested for a while before making that decision? Or how did you know he was the right person? Because everyone kind of describes it like a marriage. Yeah, that's definitely true. And if you ask people now, they'll probably say that we interact like an old married couple. In fact, I've known my co-founder longer than I've known my husband. So um, there's, there's some truth to that. I, I would say that, you know, it was pretty evident uh, pretty early on that we had a very complementary set of skills and a lot of mutual respect for each other and what we had to bring to the table. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't say that we had this formal process or anything that we thought through around testing it. It just kind of everything fell into place, honestly, um, when we initially started working together. And, you know, I was, I was quite young at the time. So um, I, I had a lot of room to make mistakes. <laughs> Uh, that it's a little harder to get when you're a bit further along in your career or your life. You know, I, I didn't have, I wasn't married. I didn't have a kid then. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was, we were both just taking a chance on it. We wanted to see how far we could take it. We both wanted to build, you know, a huge and meaningful company. And we just really went from there, but it, there wasn't a, a big question. There wasn't a process that he went through or I went through. He was working on the technology before I joined him, just to be clear. Um, but neither of us went through some kind of a like an actual vetting process. If I was to start a company now, you know, I have a, a very different network than I did back then. Um, you know, I've certainly learned a lot along the way. I might go about it differently just because I think I would be looking to start a company in a different way 
um, than I did this time around. Like it just took us a long time to really get the company going. Mm -hmm. And um, it wouldn't be the case my next time around just because of everything I've learned. Yeah, well, I think that's why investors always love repeat founders as well, just because I think you just, uh, you're able to, you know, they always say like, you know what you don't know, um, and you just, yeah. you know a lot more the second time. But So before we dive into you, one thing that I find really interesting that we uh, previously discussed was that you're a bootstrapped company for the most part. And so I'd love yep. to hear your thinking about that. And, you know, most of the founders I've talked to, as I mentioned before, um, this is really it's really their dream to bootstrap, but oftentimes, like, what are the pros and cons of doing so? And and did you ever feel like you should raise more outside capital? Uh, great question. So I guess I'll start with what how the company has gotten to the point that we have and why we haven't raised yet, and then I'll talk yeah. about plans going forward. So we um, it took us a long time to really find product market fit is the shortest way to explain it. And we didn't want to raise funding until we really knew how we could build a scalable business. We did go through Y Combinator in 2013, and we took a tiny bit of outside capital then, um, just over a million dollars. But it was from individuals who we thought could really add value into the company in different ways. People like Eric Hahn and Elad Gill and Osman Laraki, who have all been in operating roles previously, have all been involved in a ton of very successful startups and who we felt could help us to scale the company. And, and they've served that purpose, right? When we need help with something or have a difficult question or want help with filling a senior executive role or something like that, those folks have been really valuable to us. But we've been able to uh, bring in enough revenue to scale the company up to we're over 70 people in 10 countries right now, and uh, we're continuing to grow at a pretty healthy clip, and we just don't need to raise outside funding. So it doesn't make sense to us to raise until not raising will hold back the business. Um, that said, as I mentioned previously, we are about to launch a new product uh, focused on the enterprise, which means building out a lot of new parts of the business. And as a, you know, as a part of that effort, we're seriously considering potentially taking on outside capital now, which is, you know, much further along than most companies are. But I can tell you, I've seen so many companies that have tried to compete with us over the years, just go out of business because they raised too early and they raised too much mm -hmm. and they were never able to deliver on the numbers that they needed to get to that next stage of growth. And we're here because, you know, we've been conservative and we've really thought through how we spend our resources. We focused on building a business and, and a product that people are willing to pay for that will allow us to scale on our own. And now, you know, we'll be in the driver's seat if and when we decide to, to move forward with raising around because we've proven that we can build the team. We already have it in place, right? We've proven that we can build a very meaningful business. You know, we don't disclose revenue, but most people can do the calcs on what it takes to sustain a company of over 70 people with an office in Soma and, you know, a lot of growth. And, and it's not cheap. So we've built a real business, and that gives us uh, a lot of leverage when, we, when the time comes to start talking to investors about a potential round. Yes, I definitely agree. I, I don't imagine you'll have uh, any trouble at all in that regard. Um, and so I do want to, you know, one day we'll have to talk offline more about um, the ability to have so many people working remotely, because I find that fascinating. I think it's a trend we're kind of moving towards as a society. And so it's really yeah. great to see that you're able to do that at scale. 
Um, but I more so now want to focus on you. And so you said you are a Bay Area native. Yes. Uh, so what did your parents do for a living? Were they in tech? No. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom for my whole life um, mm -hmm. and did all the things that wonderful stay-at-home moms do. She was super involved in my school and, and great at keeping everything running at home. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. Uh, he's, he calls it fun employed now. He's completely living it up, and I hope I can do retirement as well as he does. But um, <laughs> he had just uh, basically bought out the owner of a small um, glass installation company that installed glass primarily in commercial buildings, but in some homes. It was quite small. I think they were doing like a million dollars in revenue at the time. And I was about a year old. And I grew up watching him build that in one, into one of the top few glazing contractors in the entire country. So they built, you know, San Francisco Airport. And a lot of the skyline has, wow. you know, his company's signature on it. They did most of the glass enclosures, all the curtain walls, which are when a, a building is like has a full glass exterior. Um, so I, I certainly learned a lot from him. Um, I was entrepreneurial from a really young age. I tried not only to have like a lemonade stand, but I tried to sell like tadpoles and face painting and all kinds of different things. And then I had an <laughs> arts and crafts business with my friend on the trail when we were like, I think when we were 10, we made, we made over a hundred bucks selling some crafts on the trail in out in Danville. And our parents like couldn't believe it and didn't know what to do with it. So they took us to Target and we furnished my friend's playhouse with like bean bags and stuff. Um, but I, I, I guess love it's that. Been in my, yeah, I guess it's been in my blood for a really long time. Um, you know, my father is super supportive and he used to take, he was teaching me like the difference between C and S corps and stuff when I was like, you know, 12 years old or something. I would like, go in like most go, children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a little unusual, but, um, you know, I worked for him a lot over the summer and I learned a lot. It's funny because it's such a different industry. And now he's like, holy cow, I should have gone into software because he looks at our margins versus, you know, his company's margins. Yeah. And he's like, holy shit, I went into the wrong line of business. But, um, yeah. but I learned, I learned a lot about just how to how to manage people, how to build and inspire teams, um, how to communicate, you know, how to build durable business relationships and a lot yeah. of great things that like they apply no matter what industry you're in. Yes. I mean, I love that your father was in an industry that affects, you know, so much of our daily lives or is part of our daily routine that I would never have known about. You know, I didn't even, I didn't even consider that. I, lo I love learning about businesses that when you say like, oh, yes, of course, the glass has to come from anywhere. Why would I have known that? Uh, but so it, sounds like, uh, it sounds like sales has been a part of your blood as well. If you were selling things on a, on a trail, you said at 12. Um, yeah. And so when you were younger, did, what did you want to be when you grew up originally? Did you think like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? Or did you have different aspirations? Yeah, it, it changed a lot over the years. There was a while I wanted to be a lawyer, but we have a lot of those in my family. And then I realized that would mean having to go through law school. And I, you know, I did fine in school, but I, I've never been like an academic, right? I always wanted to get out and do and build things. Like I worked all through high school. I worked in college. I really liked getting to actually see firsthand things rather than, than sit in a classroom. So I thought about being a lawyer. Then I thought I, for a while, I really wanted to be like a hedge fund manager or a wealth manager. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, I had a bunch of friends who went into finance who had to go through the 
five or 10 years of hell that you have to go through to claw your way up. And I realized that I don't think I could be like subservient to somebody for that long. I'm just, I, I don't have that personality to, uh, to go through that. So, you know, I think it was like reflecting back, it was pretty natural for me to start my own company. I always knew whether I was running a hedge fund, I wanted it to be mine, or if I was a wealth manager, I wanted it to be my business. Um, I didn't see myself necessarily getting into technology early on, but I've always had just an interest in, you know, everything from cell phones and gadgets to obviously now all the, the infrastructure uh, software that we deal with. Yeah, of course. But you didn't want to go to college to study computer science or anything. No, no, no. I, um, in fact, the reason that I went to USC for college was because of their entrepreneurial studies program. So oh, like, wow, okay. by the time I got to that point, um, where I was making a college decision, I did know that I wanted to start my own company. It's more the lawyer and, you know, doing those kind of jobs from when I was, you know, 10 or 12. By the time I was, you know, going to college, I, I pretty much knew. And so I love, I love hearing this. So you knew you wanted to be your own boss. But what I'm interested to know is how does that translate to then leading people to say, you know, I personally don't ever want to have a boss. Then how do you become a boss for others? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and I would I would make a distinction there, though. It wasn't so much about being my own boss. Like, I know mm -hmm. people people think that way, but trust me, if you ask any entrepreneur, they'll tell you that, like, it, you're not really your own boss. I mean, right? Like, nobody's telling you what to do, but it's, you still have to be there for the company, and you have to deliver, and there's a lot of eyes and pressure on you. It's not like you can, you know, people think you can just do whatever you want. I'm in, you know, eight or ten hours of meetings a day, so it's not like, you know, this lifestyle that people imagine where I'm, like, sitting on a beach, you know, on my laptop or something, um, which is what <laughs> I hear when I hear, like, be your own boss kind of a thing. Um, for me, I think watching my dad build his company where so many people's lives were changed by it, you know, I mean, we're not yeah. doing charity work. I get that, but you're helping, like, he's helping the people who he has faith and believes in, like, build their careers and in turn build their lives. And he would see them, you know, have kids and he would be at their kids' weddings. And, you know, I mean, he, you see this, like, team of great people come together and build something awesome that's what mm -hmm. attracted me to it was like I want to I want to build this this amazing thing with an amazing group of people like that that was more what it was not necessarily being my own boss um I I think one thing that was really good for me and before starting in a company was in particular at T-Mobile I actually started working there in college and I was promoted into management quite quickly. Uh, I think I was 20, actually. I might have been the youngest manager they ever had, in, at least in the U.S. And um, I really had to learn by trial by fire, right? I did get some good training mm -hmm. from them, but it was a lot of just learning on the job. But there's a lot of very basic blocking and tackling stuff that I'm really grateful to T-Mobile for teaching me. And also, you know, I think... I, I think I hired like 60 people in, in two or three years. And when you, when you have that kind of volume of hiring and managing, you mm -hmm. really start to see patterns and learn what you're good at and where you need to get better. And, you know, you see where you've made mistakes, right? It's the truth, right? I'm not going to say I was always the perfect manager for everyone, but um, that was really good for me. So when I started, um, 
to work on Bitnami with Daniel, I, I had a lot of experience and at least the basic blocking and tackling of how do you hire people? How do you bring them on board? How do you bring them up to speed? How do you manage performance? You know, I've learned a lot on the job, just like I probably any other founder will tell you, you know, I'm certainly a better manager now than I was a few years ago. And I hope I'll be a hell of a lot better, you know, a few years from now. But um, the most important thing is uh, realizing what you don't know and seeking advice from people who have been through it and listening to that advice uh, and, and, you know, figuring out how to apply it to your unique style, because not everybody has the same management style. You know, there are millions of books on that you know, how it happens pretty organically. And especially with us, you know, we started with a small team and have grown over time. So you get a chance a little bit to adjust to what your job looks like at different sizes of the company. You know, my job is a hell of a lot different now, you know, when we're over 70 people than it was when we were at 15 people. And thankfully, there's at least a period of time that you go through where you, you get to learn as you grow. I think you see a lot of companies who raise a ton of money and then go out and hire a ton of people right away, really flounder, even when they have experienced uh, executives at the helm, but especially if they don't. You know, if you've never built a team before and you go from zero to 50 people in a year and then from 50 to 100 or 200 the following year, like the very few companies actually pull that off effectively. Yes. Yeah, I actually find that a lot of time people throw people or hires at a problem and they don't really know what that hire is going to do for the next three months after like the first week when the problem's fixed. I love what you what you said about, you know, continual improvement. I think it's really important. And so, you know, you mentioned a few books you've read. What is the best piece of advice that you've received um, as a founder? Or the worst. Don't, don't <laughs> die. I think Paul Graham's, you know, rule zero or one, whatever he calls it, don't die. I was actually writing up some advice that's going to go on a website for this new seed fund that I'm a part of. And uh, and that was one of the things that I wrote. They asked for my advice for female founders. And one of the things I said was, you know, just don't, if you believe, if, if you're true, if you're honest with yourself in the potential for your success, at what you're doing, not yourself individually, but for the company that you're working on, if you believe there's a real potential for success, then don't give up. Like you need to know when to fold too, if you've missed the mark and try something new. But if you really believe the opportunity is there, don't give up. You know, that's, that's the reason that we're around. We just refuse to give up and we persevere through hard times, just like everybody has. And that's how we've gotten to the point that we're at. Um, so that's one piece of advice. And another thing I would say is, you know, just remember that people and relationships, no matter what business you're in, are incredibly important. And you need to always carry yourself with integrity and respect the people that you work with, because especially in Silicon Valley, it's a very small place. And I cannot mm -hmm. tell you how many relationships I've built with people that ended up unintentionally paying off years later because people move around jobs. Um, and we've had people work at one client and then bring us into another client and mm -hmm. things like that. And I think people in their drive for success sometimes forget that you know, like your company is probably in most cases only going to be around for a period of time before there's some kind of exit and you move on to something else. 
and people are here and they're around and you know your 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 uh, reputation will follow you so um i think those are two things there's a million pieces of advice that i you know i've heard and would pass forward i would say that the hard thing about hard things is one of the best business books i've read uh, yeah. in a very long time so for your listeners, if they haven't read it yet, it's definitely worth a read. It's a fantastic book and gives you a cold, hard look at, you know, some of the things that you have to go through as an entrepreneur and some of the decisions that you have to make. And a lot of people make it sound all fluffy and fun and games, and it's nice to get a breath of fresh air. Um, I think the essays that have come out of Paul Graham and Y Combinator are spectacularly mm-hmm. good piece as well. So yeah. um, those are the two things I'd, I'd look at. It's funny you mentioned the Ben Horowitz's book because I think when you said perseverance, it's like the first thing I think of is his book when I, you know, you read about them almost going out of business like four times and how yeah. he manages to turn it around. And I, I just think he doesn't sugarcoat it. Like you said, it's never easy firing someone. It's, you know, never easy thinking that, you have so many people's lives um, in your hands. And so I thought it was a really interesting perspective about that. And I think people idealize founders, but they go through so much hardships and they have to care about so many other people that I find that the best ones are very acutely aware of that. Even when mm-hmm. you have hundreds of employees, you're still aware that each one, you know, has their own life and they're kind of relying on you for it to work out. Yeah, and I do think sometimes people forget that, right? You know, I've certainly had to fire my fair share of people for various reasons. And like people forget that we as founders do, like we really care about the people. And I'm not saying it's not harder on the people getting fired than it is on us, but it's it's definitely not an easy thing to make that decision. But I will tell you that uh, what we see is even if people, you know, are asked to leave, um, they typically end up better off and they learn a lot through the experience the experience. And I would plug Martin Nikos, who was the uh, CEO of MySQL and is now the CEO of HackerOne, just today mm-hmm. published a great article. I think it's on CBS. And he said, why getting fired helps me to be a better CEO. And he talks about that. Um, and it's, it's a fantastically good read for people. It's really short, but um, I love it when people, you know, open up like that and, and tell mm-hmm. you, look, you know, I've been through that. And here's how it worked out for me. And I've seen that work out for other people, but yeah, yeah. We're, we're all humans at the end of the day, right? Founder or otherwise. I love that. Yes. And so with that, we're going to transition um, to the end with some fun questions. And so I usually ask people what their uh, favorite startup is in their city, if they're in a smaller market, and I've never done that to anyone in the Bay. So you will be my Guinea pig. What's your other favorites? What's another startup you love in San Francisco? I mean, there's not amazing. many to choose from, you know. <laughs> I know there's there's so many amazing startups. Um, I would say that uh, I think what Mattermark is doing is really interesting. They're trying mm-hmm. to be like the Dun and Bradstreet for um, for privately held companies, and they basically do a ton of data crunching and analysis around privately held companies. And uh, they sell that information to VCs and a bunch of other people. But I just think it's an interesting concept. Another company, I will say I'm an investor in it, so I'm kind of biased, but is Modic. And we've had so many problems with marketing automation, and they have an open source solution to marketing automation. And I think they're doing some really interesting things to try and fix a really broken industry. Um, mm. There's actually one other one that I found out from Facebook, which is 
there is this company, I'll have to look up the name, but what they're doing is fascinating. They, um, they have a like medical clinic that's totally state of the art and you just pay a monthly fee and um, they do all your diagnostics and all your testing and are basically meant to replace your GP and you can get appointments super quickly and everything's online and um, your insurance doesn't cover it. But again, I think it's like $150 a month or something, but I'm really fascinated with how broken I think our healthcare system is. With, oh, me with too. <laughs> yeah, and and I just I saw that and I was like, wow, I never thought of that. But I had a, a conversation with my husband the other night when I saw that company, and then I saw another company that is doing. You can mail in all kinds of samples, and they'll send you testing data, and you can get it on your phone for everything from like your stress hormone levels to food sensitivities and all this other stuff. And I'm very curious to see how this evolves. Like, it seems like a lot of companies are finding ways to just go completely around the existing system and find a way to provide affordable and like high tech solutions to people's problems and get them the information that they need to make their own decisions. And I'm really fascinated by that stuff, but I don't have any, you know, other than like reading about them or seeing ads, I I don't have any uh, relationship with those companies. It's just an interesting space. I totally, I just did uh, an interview with the founder of Redux, which is doing an API for healthcare. And I, I, I totally agree. I think healthcare, if you've ever had an illness, you understand how poorly run our healthcare system is. Um, and just like how hard it is to even know your own data. So I'm, I'm definitely interested with you in that space. Uh, and so uh, my final question is because we're running out of time is if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? the founder of the Rent of Runway. Um, okay, great. So I am absolutely fascinated with that business model. I just think it's brilliant. And I use the service, you know, even though I work in infrastructure software, I still like to put on a dress from time to time. And um, <laughs> the, the, whole, the whole model is a totally different space. And the whole model is just really, I'd love to know, you know, how she came up with that how they scaled the business, you know, they have to deal with tons of inventory too, which is something that you don't have to deal with in a, you know, a software startup. So, you know, learning a little bit more about how she built up that company uh, would be very interesting. And I'm I'm fortunate that I'm going to get to work with her soon on something. So I'm looking for, I've never met her before, but um, I'd love to to interview her, but I could probably give you a list of a hundred right after this. I bet, yeah. But I'll, I'll give you that one for now. No, that's great. Thank you so much for being on my show. It was such a pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, and that's a wrap on episode 29. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for episode 30.